0: Good morning everybody. How you guys doing? Happy Mother's Day. It doesn't work for me. Somebody yelled back Happy Mother's Day. I it's not my mother's day. So my wife is is out Uh, In children's church today so that's awesome but thank you guys all you mothers that are here we are so glad that you are here and uh, as chris had mentioned before we have hopefully have some more of those booklets um, in the back right there where chris is holding up if you came in late we want to honor you mothers please grab one of those uh god's promises for godly women we would love for you to have that that is a gift from us to you uh to celebrate you this day Um, I am Pastor Jeremy, and I am here from Heights Christian Church, and one of the things we do here that's different is we go through the Bible in five years period of time, and we're on our first year going through it. If you want to follow along with us, there's a number of ways you can do that. What we do as a congregation is we read the Bible together six days a week, and you can get a reading schedule up at the information desk, or you can go to YouTube to our, our channel there where we have devotionals on that same reading. Uh, that we're doing as a congregation together. It's YouTube backslash Heights Christian Church, YouTube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. And you can click bell for notifications, and we'll get one dropped every single day, Monday through Saturday. And then what happens on Sunday is we come together as a congregation, and our sermon is based in whole or in part from what we've read this past week. And we're in the book of Exodus right now, and we have just seen Moses Uh, and lead the Israelites out of slavery and God redeem the people of Israel and take them and deliver them from slavery we've had this Red Sea close up and we talked about that this past week how many of you got to read from Exodus 15 to 19 raise your hand sweet all right so we got to see the beginning of their journey and their journey begins kind of harshly. We, we see them coming up across bitter waters. This is waters that would make people sick. And God delivers them from those bitter waters. We see the people wondering how they're going to get food. And God provides for them quail and manna. And would provide manna for 40 years as they're in the desert regions wandering around. And then we see that this whole company comes to the mountain of God. And a couple of things happen. One is uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, gives advice. And we're going to jump into that a little bit more on our sermon. And, and the second is we see the preparation of the people of God be, uh, seeing God in his majesty. That's what we see as they come to the, to the mountain of God. I think there's some real irony there that these same people who were complaining to see God begin to see a manifestation of his majesty and all of a sudden they're like, ah! and don't think you wouldn't either because you would. It's a crazy thing when you come face to face with your creator and that's what they are coming to at the end of Exodus 19 in preparation for where we'll be stepping into next week. But this sermon is going to be based a lot on the advice that Jethro gives his son-in-law Moses. And this sermon is titled, The First Disciples. And it's, it's titled this way because what we find in this passage of Scripture are the very same principles that we still use this day as believers in Christ within the church. And so we have a lot of application today. There's going to be four main things that we're going to be pulling out of this passage. For those of you who are like note takers and you like how many points that are in a sermon, we have four today. There are four. Okay? So let's take a look at the passage together uh, as a whole real quick. Exodus chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9. Moses has made his way to his father-in-law, Jethro. His wife and his sons are there. He had sent them on ahead, and now they're back together again. In verse 9, Jethro begins to speak, or begins to talk about that account. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Uh, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening, and when his father in law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what, is, what it is that you are doing for the people what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, Because the people will come seek me to seek God's will. And whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now. Listen to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who will fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple case is they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because it will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Well, Moses is leading the group of Israelites out from Egypt. And as we've talked, this is a number of people, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half million people. That's a lot of people. And when they come to the mountain of God, they're, they're sitting there waiting for the next step with God. At the beginning of the day, Moses comes out and everybody is saying, okay, I have a complaint. Can you imagine one and a half to two and a half million people and nobody complaining? Nobody has a problem. We know that that's not true. So we know that there's problems. But what was happening is Moses, because he's a representative of God and he's the one who's hearing from God all these decrees, is taking all of them on his own. And Jethro, a very wise man, praising God for what God has done in delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt, sees what's happening and recognizes there's a problem here. Moses, you are going to absolutely wear yourself out. If you don't learn to delegate this responsibility to other people, You're never going to make it. You're going to be wore out. Your people are going to be wore out. You know why? Because if you're number 50,000 waiting in a line and only one person is serving you, you're going to get tired of waiting. Everybody's going to get wore out. It's not just that Moses will be wore out. So are the people waiting. I'm waiting. I'm standing in line. And there's only one person doing anything. This is why we look at the church because there's a lot of things that happen we see the same application happening in the church right so the first point is this jethro gives him moses the decree to focus on teaching on others to teach others he's supposed to teach the decrees of the lord to the people and he specifically says, I want you to teach them to people who can then can take over. This is, this is, this is the, blah, blah, blah. the disciple-making process. This is why this is called the first disciples. This is exactly what they're called to do. So the focus is, Moses, you need to focus on the teaching, the statutes, the thing that God is revealing to you. You need to reveal to others so that it's not just you knowing how to dispute these cases that are being brought before you. We see the same thing bear itself out in the New Testament as well. At the, at the beginning of the early church, we start with 120 in the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, we see 3,000 are saved. And a little bit later, we see up to 5,000 being saved. So we have now this huge megachurch that has just come on the scene just like that. And so what happens? Well... It's very easy, even in a smaller group like that. It's not 1.5 to 2.5 million, but still, you put 5,000 people in a room, are we all going to get along? It's going to be hard, right? I mean, outside of our unity in Christ, we're going to have disputes, we're going to have other things that come up with one another, we're going to have needs that need to be met. And so what happens in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. See, disciples knew they were limited. It's not that they were above it. I think sometimes we can read that and, and think that sometimes there's a superiority complex, right? Disciples, you're too good for that? No, they've been given a ministry of God by Jesus himself to go out and make disciples. They're the ones who are sharing that ministry by sharing the word of God and showing that Jesus is the fulfilled Messiah. They were called by Jesus to do that. And now there's 5,000 people. And the needs are only going to grow. And how do we move things forward? Well, you know what? It's not for the disciples to say, okay, well now there are these needs in the church. And you guys need to do that. As a matter of fact, what would something like that look like? Well, i got a video that kind of shows you what happens if all of the ministry within the church were siphoned to one person. Let's take a look at that together.
1: You, meet, you go to church, right? mm mm-hmm. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, so what, what are your thoughts on on God and church and heaven and
0: stuff? All great questions. Just, um, it's it needs to be answered. Pretty deep question for out on the lawn this morning. I do have a lot of thoughts on that particular issue. Sam, you rang? That's Mike, what took you so long? He was just asking me kind of what I believe.
1: Gotcha, I'll take it from here. Thanks. See you guys. Okay. Well, first of all, Sam believes the Bible's the inspired, infallible word of God. Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross as a, a propitiation.
0: I'm sure your dad's going to start coming to the games. You
1: know? Once the divorce is funny, how things get better? Pastor. Can I, can I get a minute? Ah, uh, not really. I'm, I'm babysitting. I've got some groceries to deliver and bill. I'm That's great. For... Look, hey, Jack over here needs somebody to show him the love of Christ. Dad's a real jerk. You know, you got the
0: counseling background. We got tickets to a game. We are late. Maybe just a round to catch to show him, hey, somebody cares.
1: Yeah. Well, See well, you I... Sunday. It's okay. It's okay. Hey, buddy. Yeah, I'm feeling okay. But the place. Is falling apart. I just don't know what to do.
0: Every last dollar goes to the doctor. What can be done? Uh,
1: wow, well, I, don't, I don't know. That that sounds really sad.
0: Somebody need a minister?
1: Oh, pastor, great. Um, she can't take care of her house. There's got to be something someone can do for her, right?
0: You mean help her out, uh, meet her needs? That's a great idea. Why did I think of that? <laughs> don't
1: know. I I just did preach a 16-week series on showing love in practical ways. Oh, yeah. Hey, great series. Good luck, huh? Actually, I was just helping an older woman walk across the street. I left her in the median. Hi.
0: know as funny as that is and it, and it is funny i love that i love that little clip right there it does demonstrate why the body is needed we are members of the body of christ we all have different functions within the body of christ and some of our functions are preaching and teaching and others of our functions are serving and having servants roles within that i had a uh, professor when i was going to college i had a professor who was uh in ministry, and he went to a church, sat down with the people who were looking to hire him. He did not go to this church, by the way. He was looking to be hired by a church, and this was not that church, just so you know. They had a long list of things. They said, Here's what we want you to do. And they had these pages of bullet points of all the expectations of him in this pastoral role. And so we asked very simply So I'm just going to take this line item by line on him. How? long do you want me to spend on each one of these items per week? Seems like a reasonable request, right? So he would go down and they would give a certain amount of time that he needs to spend at at doing that. After that time was over, he added up the whole thing on his sheet. It was 192 hours. There's only 168 hours in a week. He used the opportunity to tell them that they needed a more realistic Understanding of what a pastor ought to be doing, what the priorities of the pastor ought to be. And I mention that to you because guess what? As leaders within the church, the pastor's job is to equip people for the works of service. Teaching and preaching is where I'm going to spend most of my time, and stuff outside of that, not that it's not important, it's super, it really is, but I can't do everything. This is why we need the body. I'm so thankful for the body of Christ. Hearing about the women's ministry today and talking about how uh, the body has come together to reach out to the daycare families. I love the fact that we have so many who serve within our church that we are not a dysfunctional body. But it can change very quickly, right? When those expectations grow and that time is whittled away. So leadership needs to focus on teaching and training other people. Because it's not just them doing it. And if they don't do it, we have nobody equipped to do those jobs except for the pastor or the elders. Number two, the second thing about all of this is discerning who's ready to lead and what kind of serving and how much can they do. That seems like a lot, right? Who's ready to lead? What kind of serving? How much should they be serving? Well, we see that, that when we look back at how Moses broke apart all the different people who were there. Exodus chapter 18, verses 21, when he's told by Jethro, But select capable men from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them. As officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And skipping down to verses 24 and 25, this is what Moses did. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Not everybody is given the same amount of responsibility. Some were given more than others. There are some that only had tens of people that they were over, while others had 50 and hundreds and thousands. This was to help manage this great number of people that was being led out of Egypt and toward the promised land. He couldn't do it by himself. And yet, not everybody got the same responsibility. As a matter of fact, in the church, we have two major offices, if you will. We have the office of elders. We have the office of deacons. And and in both cases, when we read in the scripture, there are qualifications for each of these. We're going to take a look at those together, real quick. First Timothy, chapter three, verses one through seven. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer or elder must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So we see a number of things here. Number one, we see that there's a very high qualification for an overseer, for an elder within the church. That, that they need to know not only the Word of God, but they also need to be able to teach, right? Because that's part of the office of the elders, to teach. It's a public ministry. It's going to be somebody who, who comes in some sort of public form to teach the people so that they will know God's Word, much like Moses was teaching these others that were going to be over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and what were they going to be doing? Teaching the people the decrees of God. So they would know how to judge in certain cases. But it was more than just judgment that they were trying to give. They were also trying to tell people the statutes and commands of God. We see the same thing happen with deacons. We have another list of things for deacons. When we look right here, deacons in verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. It goes on further and says about deacons' wives, saying in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So so what we see are that there's qualifications for the offices that happen there. As a matter of fact, if we go back to the Acts chapter, we, we see that what we have are the apostles setting aside, if you will, the first deacons. And it's from these first deacons that we get our first martyr in the church. So those offices are not of a, this is greater than this. They're just different. Because all of us are called to make disciples. Not all of us are called to make disciples and teach in a public ministry. Some of us are. Some of us have that gift. And it has to be meted out. And the leadership does that. We're all called to make disciples Not all are called to do it through a teaching ministry. You know, what what happens is, and a great danger for any of us who desire these things, desire these greater offices, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, he desires, who, who, who wants to desire to be an overseer, desires a noble task, right? This is a good thing. But just because we desire it doesn't mean that we're going to get it in the measure that we think we ought to get it. And what can happen when, when that happens in our lives, within our community, is we can have unrighteous jealousy come up and upend the things that God might do for us. Think of it this way. How do you think the people who were only entrusted with ten felt? Because Moses had to divide everybody up. The ones who are faithful with thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Almost seems like a byline, right? It's like I you got you got okay, George over here, we we he's awesome, he's got all these skills. We believe that he's gonna be great for these two thousand people. And you, we got fifteen for you right over here. Like, really. But George has two thousand, and we do that. We don't wanna say that we do that, but we do. I can honestly say that I remember being here. I felt like Anakin Skywalker. You guys, some of you will recognize this reference. I felt like Anakin Skywalker the first six years I was here because I was on staff and I was on the elder board, but I had no vote. For those of you who know Revenge of the Sith, you know what I'm talking about. How can you be on the board and not be a master? That was my attitude. I have no problem saying that. I would complain at times like, I'm on the board, but I don't have a vote. I don't say anything. And you know what? I want to say something. Looking back now, many, many years after that, I'm glad that I didn't have a vote. I'm glad I wasn't an elder. I wasn't ready for it at the time. The people who were there on the board knew better than me that I shouldn't have had the vote. Not because I was stupid, okay? Lest you guys think that. But I was not mature enough. And they recognized that. And it was hard walking in that. As a matter of fact, some of my reaction only highlights the immaturity that I had. And sometimes the leaders in the church doing the best they can with the guidance of the Holy Spirit might not put you in the position that you think you ought to be. But they might be seeing something that you're not. They actually had... People leave this church because they were not selected to be an elder in this church. Just have not naming any names seriously, but I know it's true. Because our pride gets hit. And the, the irony is we give up all of our ministry because we think we deserve more and everybody else can, might be able to see those faults that we're not quite ready for that next step takes a little bit of humility. Many pastors deal with this too. They, they deal with it not just on the level like I did, stepping into the elder board that I wasn't a part of for the first six years being here, but rather on top of that, they start looking around the congregation. Why, why do I only have a congregation of 150 or 120, or why am I only around a congregation of 50? I should shouldn't I be entrusted with a large? Why is Skip the only one with multiple services in this town? I know he's not the only one. I, I understand that, but still, as a pastor, guess what? All of that pride, right? On the inside, instead of being grateful for the ones in which I'm entrusted with, you start looking at what the greener grass on somebody else's pasture that God has entrusted them with those things. And instead of rejoicing, we look with bitterness. How ridiculous is that? God is giving you 10 people to minister to. Praise God for those 10. And shame on us if we've ever thought otherwise. For it is a glory to be able to minister to anybody in the name of Jesus. But discerning who is ready to lead and what kind of serving and how much. Not everybody serves in the same way. Like I said there are teaching ministries and then there are servant ministries. I think it is one of the great things about David coming on board here at Heights. Is that we get to focus a little bit more on the serving ministry. That me and Mark were not very good at doing. Because... We're on the teaching end of things. That's what we focused on. It's where our heart is. We are called to be those elders who teach, those pastors who equip. That's where we wanted to be. So that's where we would spend our time. But guess what? There are awesome servants here that we've heard about all day. Moms, you're one of them, by the way. But we have awesome servants who are here. I think Aaron Otzenberger, I don't even think he's here today. Is he here? I'm talking about you, Aaron. So... What an awesome servant! As a matter of fact, me and uh, me and David were talking about. I'm like, you know what? He is serving so well. He is serving as well as any elder in this church, and he may not have a teaching ministry, but he has a heart for Jesus and all that he does. And how is that inferior? It's not. It's needed. It's a necessary portion of the body of Christ working together to do the will of God together. And I'm so glad that we can focus on both the teaching ministry and the servant ministry. So those of you who are servants, praise God for every one of you. There are some of you who are like, I never want to be in front of everybody else teaching. Give me a background job. Let me cook. Let me clean. Let me do all of this. You know what? Praise God for every one of you who do it faithfully for the love of Jesus Christ. And what we need to do as a body, and that's why I'm so happy that David's here, is recognize... Those people with those servant gifts to release them and to know exactly where they need to lead, where they need to serve, and how much they can handle. Some will serve in greater capacities than others. Be thankful that we get to serve because we get to serve in the name of Jesus. So the first one is for Moses was to focus on teaching others because he was in a leadership position of training the second is discerning who's ready to lead and what kind of serving and how much. Yeah, those are great points. Like couldn't you make that like easier to write down? The third one is this. Keeping free from the love of money. It's one of the things that if you notice all the stuff that we've read through all the qualifications whether we read in the Old Testament or in the New had the same precaution. Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21. Let's take a look at that real quick. Jethro's advice is but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. And that's who you appoint over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. They hate dishonest gain. Because they're going to be judging for the people of Israel. They're going to be teaching the people of Israel. They're going to be leading the people of Israel. The last thing that you need, whether then in their time or now in our time, is somebody who says, you know what? I could serve you a whole lot better if you got a Benjamin. Right? If you just—I mean, I—I I could, I—I I could. You would be surprised how much more efficient I come with just a couple Benjamins, right? But if I'm not willing to do that to begin with, am I really a worthy leader? As a matter of fact, that's exactly why we read. And I just want to preface: if we go back to those same passages, First Timothy chapter three, verse three, that an elder is not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money that a deacon, verse 8, likewise would be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. And why is that? Well, simply put, because the love of money can drag us away from the things of God. And in First Timothy chapter 6, That's exactly what Paul talks about. First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse nine, he he, uh, warns Timothy says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue faith. Uh, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Some pursuing dishonest gain have fallen away from the faith. This is a health and wealth gospel that we hear. Always promising a financial and, and, and wealthy and healthy blessing that comes out. What does that look like, by the way? Because it can be intoxicating, believe it or not. That you and I, whether you believe it or not, can be sucked into that type of thinking so very easily. And I want to show you by watching a little video clip.
1: What would make you wake up? go to your daughter's room open up your laptop write down impossible things get in a borrowed 15 passenger van drive over to a 54 million dollar arena take this picture and tell everybody you will one day own it crazy face what makes you get back into the 15 passenger van to your current situation get on a platform in front of skeptical people and say this we're going to have to go to another place crazy faith what would make you turn down two million dollars give to other people when you were in need? say you will have no debt and believe not just for a building but for the entire block crazy Crazy faith What would make you embrace the tears after the confirmed diagnosis, acknowledge the lies and the fears, but still believe for the healing in your child? Crazy faith. What would make you stop waiting on the crowd to agree with what you know, but they cannot see? Stop playing it safe on the boat. It's time for you to do the impossible and walk on the scene. You've got to see it before you see it. Yeah, maybe it might sound crazy, but baby, your purpose can't afford for you to be lazy. It's only crazy until it happens.
0: That is not an endorsement for that book. Intoxicating, isn't it? You can look at something like that and we get sucked in so easily to think that, oh man, that, that there is some nuggets of truth that are there, but everything there is based upon materialistic wealth and looks and the whole idea of that you can pray whatever disease out of your life. One day, guess what? You and I are going to die, and nobody can stop that from happening except Jesus if he's coming back again. Comes back in our lifetime, maybe then. Outside of that, there's only a nugget of truth. Can God heal? Yes, absolutely he can heal. Do we trust him for healing? Absolutely we do. But is it a guarantee and is it a lackluster of our faith if he doesn't? No. God could guarantee could bless us abundantly with gifts and things that we have. And that's why there's a there's something that you and I have to keep in check. When it comes to a church and wanting to see a church grow, we want to see churches grow through people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. And that might not mean more money in the bank or a better stage or a new building, could mean all of those things. But here's the thing when you and I get stuck on thinking that success, somehow mirrors these things that are happening within that have nothing to do with transformed lives in Jesus Christ, we have bought into, whether we want to believe it or not, some of this very anti-gospel health and wealth. This is what success is. And you and I had better take a check of ourselves because we're trying to reach people for Jesus Christ. You know, we've been able to, by the grace of God, hand out these mailers, and we're about to do another batch of mailers. You know why we're reaching out to our community with the mailers? Because the gospel is preached here, not for any other reason. For you, the only reason to invite anybody to church, anybody to this place, is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached here, and we want to see lives transformed. To do it for any other reason, or to withhold that for any other reason, is to buy into the worldly lie. That somehow our form, our presentation, our anything else can replace the spirit of God in the transformation of the lives of people hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to know that. Because we want to reach out to our community. And we want to see great things happen. But I want to see God transforming lives. Where are you on that? We've got to keep ourselves free from the love of money. The underground church in China and other places, much bigger than our church, have none of these amenities. Are they worse? Do we deem them inferior? Because whatever makes their church something worthy to be emulated, that's what we're emulating here. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Number four to make ready for ministry the making of disciples. See, Moses was going to give out this charge. To tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. And for what reason? So that they could teach. So they could make disciples of others. So they could teach the statutes of God. Exodus 18, verse 22. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. See, he's releasing them into real ministry because they can do it. They have learned enough to be able to be trusted to do that ministry and understand that God is with them in as much as he was with Moses. And what you and I don't realize that those who got the greater responsibility that sometimes we long for, we wish that we could have that responsibility. Oh, I want to be a pastor. Some of you, I pray, do want to be pastors and elders and deacons of this church. I really do. But I want you to know something. You are going there to make disciples. And in making disciples, guess what? Those who get the Greater responsibility, get the greater privilege of hearing all the people griping. That's what they were doing. He set them aside for thousands, for hundreds, for fifties, for tens. For what reason? That they would bring their disputes. Oh. We glamorize discipleship making as if it's so easy to do. Like, whoo! I've made so many disciples. It's it's a sacrifice of life. It really is. A great commission, we know it, right? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them excuse me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always even to the very end of the age this making of disciples is not easy is a sacrifice of life. Because as you start pouring your life into other people, you don't know how they're going to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There might be that initial reaction where they seems like they're so excited about Jesus on the one end. And then time goes on. And then living for Jesus is hard. And they stop doing it. Or the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth make them unfruitful, and they decide, I'd rather go off this way with the world. Do you know how heartbreaking that is? Because you've invested your life in them. This is what Jesus is calling us to do in making disciples. So when we're calling people into this place, it's for us to invest our lives into them, knowing that some of the people who come into this place will not become disciples of Jesus Christ. They will give him lip service, walk down the aisle, say, I've accepted Jesus. But as soon as things get hard, boom, they're gone. As soon as something shiny happens over there, they want to go over there instead. And you, in that time that you've spent with them, oh, it's heartbreaking. And I need to tell you that. Because if you're wanting to be an elder, if you're wanting to be a deacon, if you're wanting to make disciples, as Jesus has commanded us to do, as he releases ministry to you and me, this is what he's calling us to. And even Jesus wasn't perfect in this. Although he got 11 out of 12. But even he had to deal with the betrayal of a friend. You betray, Friend, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. So it's somebody that Jesus held his heart back to. discipled him as the other disciples. He knows the heartbreak that is awaiting you and me as we spread the word of God to other places and invest our lives into other people. This is what it means. So before we take this idea that I want all the glitz and the glamour and the glory that comes with being an elder, with being a deacon, with being a pastor, with being in any of these roles, understand it's the greater responsibility to come and to give yourself wholeheartedly and to die. Again and again and again. And to feel the pain of those who walk away, just like Jesus does. I know. But there needs to be a reality check. Because I think sometimes we're in it for the worldly glory and not in it for the sacrifice of Christ. The capable men that Moses was to pick were going to be picked because they were going to faithfully administer this work where they were going to hear complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint. Making disciples doesn't happen until we invest our lives in others taking that chance on somebody that we don't know and hopefully we're trusting that their commitment to Jesus is real. And so we go and we baptize and we teach and it doesn't always stick and it's painful. But there's glory on the other end of this. I don't want to leave you in this bad place. I just want to make it real. I want you guys to understand what it is you're committing to by making disciples, which all of us are called to do. Whether we be elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or just cleaning up the sanctuary. God has called you to make disciples, to walk that life, to have that ministry released to you. But there are others That aren't like those that are going to fall away. Sorry, it's just going to happen. I just got to tell you ahead of time. But there are others that won't. Oh my goodness, can I tell you? Can I tell you what a joy it is to see those whom you've discipled in the Lord grow up? and they're strong in Jesus, and they're telling others about Jesus, and they have taken the ministry that you have built in because you have spent your life in them, and they have recognized that investment, and they understand what has happened because of what Jesus has done, and they've grown in such a way where they can be released into ministry on their own, and man, it's why John says in 3 John verse 4, you know, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Oh, there's nothing better to get called from Christian in North Carolina and realize he's starting his own youth group there. Is that not cool? That's so cool. It's worth everything. Because he's walking with Christ in that place right there, or talk with Felicia, who moved out to plant a church in the DC area. How cool is that? See that joy is mine, and nobody can take that away. You know why? Because I got to disciple those people. Isn't that cool? Now I could say the same thing with Paul and Haiti who are up there in Philadelphia. And you're going to go visit them. And I'm jealous. I'm just saying. That's so cool. We see those who are, have taken hold of that discipleship walking faithfully that you can have that joy. But with our own kids. Growing up and being faithful in the Lord. Moms, that is not a small ministry. You know me, I believe discipleship begins at home. I believe that you moms who have invested in your kids and you have discipled and you've poured your heart when they're walking with the Lord, there's no greater joy than moms and dads turning around and saying, My son, my daughter, you know what? 25 years old, 26 years old, 30 years old, 55 years old, they are still walking with Jesus. No greater joy. Would trade it for the world. But I wouldn't lie to you and say it's easy. Now as we wrap up today. I want you guys thinking about discipleship. Because the first disciples were handed out by Moses. To share in this ministry. Not just of glory but of suffering. Of pouring themselves out for other people. That they might know God. God. That ministry has been given to you and me. That we might pour ourselves out for others. That they might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only reason we invite. That's the only reason to bring people into this place. That's the only reason we want to see church growth. That's the only reason because we want to see the kingdom of God grow. And we need to be willing to invest our lives so that we make those disciples. Just stand with me as we pray together? Who would have thought a simple passage about spreading the wealth of ministry had so much to do with what we do today in making disciples? I pray today that you're challenged to make disciples, to understand that it's an investment of life. I pray that when we see new people come into this place, that you'll be the first one to start start saying that I want to invest my life in that person, in that couple, in that single mom and that college student, and those grandparents. Whoever God brings our way in this place, we have plenty of growing, believing Christians here. I'm so thankful for that. Let's start investing our lives because Jesus wants them in their kingdom, in his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help us to see the high calling of discipleship making as an investment of our lives. Not for vain glory, not for accolades, not for the titles, not for the good-looking church or buildings or anything else that might come with it, Lord. God, seriously, we want to see lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us be willing to invest our lives in such a way. And so show ourselves to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.